Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you're being seated, if you would pull out your copies of God's Word as we look at Luke chapter 13 today. Luke chapter 13, we're going to be in verses 10 through 21 this morning. A wonderfully encouraging text for us today, so I'm looking forward to reading this together. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Listen carefully, for this is God's word. Now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go one more time to our great God and ask his blessing on our text this morning. Oh God, we do thank you for this passage that you've given to us, this encouraging passage. So Lord, I pray that we would uh, that we would hear it, help me to preach it accurately and well, and help us all to be edified, to not only know what this text says, but to believe it as well. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. When I was a child, my parents tried to teach me patience. And one of the ways that they did that was to teach me to plant flowers and to wait for them to grow. Remember one year, I was probably eight at the time, they gave me some sunflower seeds to put in the little patch outside my, outside my bedroom window to grow. We had my little water can, and we, dig, we, we dug the hole and threw the seed in there, covered it up, and we went on a walk. And I came back about 10 minutes later, and I wanted to check on my sunflower seeds. Unsurprisingly to my parents, but a great astonishment to me, there were no sunflowers yet, as I had only given them all of 10 minutes they told me it was going to be a few weeks before I would see anything coming out of the ground. So I resigned my fate and then waited until that evening to check on them, just to be sure. And the days went on, and honestly, I had kind of forgotten about them, because a child will only be interested in staring at unmoving dirt for only for so long. 
And a few, a few weeks went by, and my parents said, look, there it is. And sure enough, a couple of inches out of the ground was a, a green shoot that was beginning. And a few weeks later, I had a sunflower plant that was taller than I was. It was something that was always working from the moment I put the seed into the ground, but I couldn't see its effects for some time. But all I would have to do was wait, and I would absolutely see something grow. This is the general point that Jesus is making for the church in this passage that we see before us today. We see the healing of this woman who's been waiting for 18 years to receive some sort of deliverance from her condition, and we'll explore that. But he also ties these next two parables that we look at to this woman as well, because he says, therefore, and he teaches them these parables. We're at a point right now where we look at the church, and if we were to look at things purely from a numbers perspective, purely from an organizational standpoint, we might see a lot to be discouraged about for the American church. Churches every week are closing their doors. Churches seem to be shrinking in number. Even beyond our own shores, we look at places like Europe, and it seems like things have all but vanished. We see more and more for those of us that will continue to watch our televisions or scroll through our social media feeds with an increasing sense of doom that we might think that the church is to follow in the same way as our culture. But that's not the opinion that Jesus has of the church. That's not what we are going to see in our passage today, thankfully. So I hope that this will be an encouragement as we look at our two points today. The first is that the kingdom of God is unexpected. The kingdom of God is unexpected. And then our second point, which will relate to our parables, is that the kingdom of God is unstoppable. You can see those two points in your outline inserted in the bulletin for you. But let's explore this passage together, starting with the kingdom of God is unexpected. Here in this scene, Luke is setting for us of Jesus teaching in the synagogue. This is actually going to be the last time that we're going to see Jesus teach in a synagogue in the book of Luke. And in comes this woman who has a disabling spirit who's been in this bent-over position for the last 18 years. Dr. Luke has has been analyzing her condition and wants to really make sure her full condition, that she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. You could almost imagine someone bent over at an almost 90-degree angle. And I could imagine, since she has been like this for almost two decades, that the neighborhood has probably stopped even noticing her at this point. She's probably identified by her condition as that bent-over lady. They've probably forgotten her name at this point. And we really can't much blame the, the people, as Luke points out, that this disability is caused by a spirit, so there's really no medical help for her. There's really nothing anyone can do except Jesus. Now, it bears pointing out, of course, that not every illness that either ancient times people had or us today can be, traded, can be traced back to some sort of spiritual condition. Jesus was able to heal lots of different people and didn't point out that this was uh, due to a demonic influence, but this appears to be the case for this poor woman. She needs a miracle from Jesus, and he's the only one that can do it. Well, of course, Jesus does heal her. First, Jesus notices her here in verse 12. Notice this whole thing is instituted from Jesus beginning to end. He's the one who noticed her. He's the one who called her over. And he's the one who healed us. It's a marvelous illustration of our own salvation. 
And here he comes and says, woman, you're freed from your disability. And he lays his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now this is unusual in many different capacities. First of all, rabbis didn't spend a lot of time talking to women. They just weren't as valued in ancient society as they are today. So the idea that he would go and notice and talk and touch this woman was already kind of Jesus is breaking some boundaries already. And then, of course, he's healing on the Sabbath. Now, the rest of the people that are around are very happy about this. Obviously, the woman is amazed to be freed from from this condition. And the people later on, as we'll see in verse 17, are quite happy about it as well. Finally, their friend and neighbor has been freed from this disability that she's had for quite some time. But there's just one person who is just not happy about it. We'll find him here in verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, despite all the praising that's going on, is indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And then said to the people, not to Jesus, he doesn't want to address him, just tries to passively, aggressively attack Jesus by talking to the people, and says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Here he is laying out the rules that are in his mind of what the Sabbath would entail. And he's saying, this woman, basically, it's like this woman has been in this condition for 18 years. Is it so hard to abide by our rules that she just lasts one more day? Is that really going to kill her after 18 years in this condition? Now, I'll admit, at first, this sounds very heartless and cruel because it is heartless and cruel. (laughs) And it's a betrayal of what the Sabbath was supposed to be. This is not how God had intended the Sabbath to be as an excuse to not be able to do good things for people. Because if you were to find a verse that's saying you shall not do works of healing or mercy on the Sabbath day, you will not find it in the, in the scriptures. These are all works that the rulers at the time had tried to come up with. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago we had talked about well, the ways that they did things. They wanted to make sure you wouldn't break any of God's laws. So they set up this fence of a bunch of other regulations and thinking, well, we'll make this big fence around here. So if we happen to break one of these things, at least we won't break one of God's laws. It sounds noble, but then they began to uphold man's laws much higher even than God's. And interestingly, they had come up with this whole elaborate system that Jesus mentions here. When he says, you hypocrites, do not each of you, as verse 15, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it. Even the Pharisees took care of their animals on the Sabbath day. Though they did have this really elaborate set of rules as to what you could and couldn't do. For instance, you could get the bucket and pull the water out and pour it into the trough, but you couldn't hold the bucket and let the animal drink out of the bucket. That was work. The other one wasn't. That doesn't make sense. Join the rest of the world. They didn't, no one else thought that it made sense either because these rules were not found in Scripture either. And here Jesus is making the point that if we are going to take care of our animals, then how could we possibly consider it a bridge too far to care for God's children? And note the point that he makes here, and he calls her a daughter of Abraham. He brings to mind the covenant that God has made with his people. How much more should we care for his covenant people than if we're going to care for our animals? So while the ruler wouldn't address Jesus directly... Jesus addresses the rulers 
quite directly in verse 15 and calls them hypocrites and takes them to task for this. One of the commentators had pointed out what the purpose of the Sabbath was and why it is that they had it. The fact that this was a day of rest for the people. Why might that be? Well, if we remember, the people were delivered out of slavery in which there was no such thing as a day off. The pharaohs didn't want to lose any bit of their productivity, so they had their slaves working as hard as they possibly could to build the monuments to their rulers. But when God delivers them out of slavery and says, no, instead you're going to serve me, he is a very benevolent master. And that he gives them six days to get everything else that they need to do done. And in, and in an agrarian society, you need it every day that you could. But he commanded one day to rest, to give their bodies freedom from this constant labor. And what Jesus points out here is that in verse 16, he says, ought not this woman, almost like this is a necessity. If this Sabbath is about celebrating freedom and rest from slavery, how much more should this woman be freed from her disability on this day, this day that points to a tremendous freedom? So of course, as always, he has taken down our rulers down a peg, as we see in verse 17. And as he said all these things, all the adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Here, the rulers who are obscuring God's purposes have been put to the side and the people are able to just rejoice in what the Lord is doing. This is something that's very unexpected that Christ is working here. As I covered earlier, the idea of him interacting with, with a woman during synagogue was odd enough, but then to also heal this woman who has been, for the most part, probably forgotten in these last couple of decades. And here, this is another preview, another start to what the kingdom of God looks like. But if we were to just look at this and see this for what it was, we might think that this is a very, very small start. We're going to say, here's the beginning of the kingdom of God. Look, this woman can stand up straight. You might think, yes, that's wonderful for her, but is this really going to hit the papers? Is this really going to be something that's going to be written down and remembered for thousands of years? Is this really going to be a start to the kingdom? Well, that's why Jesus then jumps into these parables, to not despise small beginnings. So we take a look at the, the church's The kingdom of God is unexpected. Here, those that were up at the top, the rulers who were supposedly had everything together, they're put to the bottom. And those that would have been ignored, they're being exalted. This great reversal is occurring. These man-made rules and traditions are being relegated to the garbage heap as they should be. But now we're taking a look at that. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. That's what we look at in these parables here. And he says, therefore, here in verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. If we're going to look at these two stories, we see two things in common. We have something small that becomes something large and something that will spread itself out wherever it goes. When we look at Mustard trees, these were very, very small seeds. It was the smallest of the clean seeds in Jewish thinking. And depending on what type of tree that this is that Jesus is referring to, 
uh, we're looking at something that might grow to about 10 or 12 feet high. It would provide branches that birds could nest in. One writer at the time also noted that mustard, tree, mustard seed trees were very hard to get rid of once they were in your garden. Because as soon as they grew up and dropped their seeds, the seeds germinate almost immediately. So it's very difficult to be able to cleanse your garden of any sort of mustard tree because it just grows and takes over the place that it's living. And we see kind of a similar illustration in the next parable. And he talks about this woman who is baking in verse 21. That the kingdom of God is like a leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. For those of you that bake, leaven would have been very similar to, to yeast at our time. So they would have taken dough that would have fermented slightly and would use that as the rising agent for the next loaf. Here when it says three measures of flour, we don't, for most of us don't know what a measure is referring to, but this would actually be about 50 pounds worth of flour that this woman is putting this leaven into. And it is going to take effect even if it's small. And that's one of the things that when we tend to look at the start of small things, we tend to think that they'll always be that way. We start out with this little bit of leaven and we think, what is this little bit to 50 pounds worth of flour? This is really going to make that much of a difference. Or a mustard seed its going to be that you could almost barely see holding in your hand. But that's going to become a tree that would provide a home for the birds of the air. You know, I used to think this way. I, when I was young, we, went and we were a part of a, a small church plant that, meant to, that met in a storefront. We were kind of hard to find. We were behind the railroad tracks, behind some trees. It's a little outlet that I didn't even know was there, and I'd lived in the city for a decade at that point. And I remember when I was a child looking at this thing and thinking, this is really small. How on earth is anything ever going to come of that? It took me embarrassingly long to overcome that sort of a thought. The idea would be that it's like, well, you really got to have a building if you're going to be able to have an impact. You're going to have to have a Facebook page. You're going to need to have a preacher who's very dynamic. You're going to need something more than the rusty storefront building with a crude hand-painted cross along the side where maybe five or so people gather. And I realized that the fault in my thinking was I was looking at all the external things. It's like, well, and you've got to have a building, you've got to have this, you've got to have that, which showed what I was trusting in to be able to build a church. That is these external realities, that this small thing doesn't have much of an impact. Now, it's true that not all small things grow. The church that I had attended in the storefront eventually dissolved. That small churches do fail. But that doesn't mean, or, or that small churches um, disappear, but that doesn't mean that they failed. The thing that I realized that was going on behind those rusty buildings with a shabby door was a miracle. People were gathered to hear the gospel and to be changed by it, even if it was just a few people. But that's how the kingdom of God grows. It's a small thing that affects a much larger reality. I've been reading a book recently. It's called Live Not By Lies. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's, 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 the subtitle was it was a, a, a manual for Christian dissidents. The idea is, is following 
the faithful Christians in communist Czech, Czech Republic as we know it today. The communists had come over, had taken over most of the country and had relegated all churches that weren't going to support the party into the underground. And they could trace basically most of what the Czech church was down to one man who had started really small cells, family units, that he would preach the gospel to, teach them and catechize them, and they would work and do the same thing in these other small arenas. This went on for a few years until they had come to what was called the Candlelight Revolution, where everyone came out to oppose communism, and communism fell without a single bullet fired. A glorious overthrow in the late 80s. And it was largely traced to the work that that man was doing that he was faithful to the mission that God had given to him, and that small seed grew into something much larger. Or we can think of the work that Hudson Taylor did. He was one of the first missionaries to China to go into the inland of China in the early 1800s, or excuse me, the the, uh, the, uh, mid-1800s. He spent a total of 51 years there and built 125 schools. And was directly, his organization was directly responsible for about 18,000 conversions of of Chinese Christians during that time. Today, the Chinese church, despite the overwhelming persecution from the communist government at that time, currently sits at about, depending on your various estimates, 90 to 120 million souls that are Christians in China. They estimate if, they, if the church continues to grow as it has since the 80s, of about 6 or 7% a year, that they'll be looking at 300 million Christians in China by 2030. That would outnumber the Communist Party three to one. And the government is already thinking about what they're going to do about that because they just can't seem to stop it. No matter how much they persecute, no matter what they try to do, the church continues to grow. And here, in large part, started by one man who gave up a medical practice in London to go into the interior of China and watch it grow. I say all this to say when we look at our government and culture today, there's a lot of shift that's occurring in our American culture. Don't know if you've noticed. And I think that we're at a tipping point. I'm not sure which way the country is going to go. I'm not a prophet, don't have access to those sorts of things. But one thing I can tell you with great assurance is that the church will not falter. The church will go on. Might we see some buildings close? Yes. Might we see some some, some congregations not be as big as they used to be? Yes. Might we even see more harsh penalties for things like this, like what we're doing? We might. But like God's call to Gideon, it's not going to be the strength of our hands or the strength of our families or our own personal fortitude that's going to get us through whatever it is that comes our way. But it's I will be with you, says the Lord. He is the one that is growing that leaven into the 50 pounds of flour. And he is the one that causes that mustard seed to grow. So that's what we hope in. We don't hope in elections. We don't hope in anything that we're able to do on our own. But what we hope in is in the power of Christ to grow his kingdom because he's promised to do it. 
And that's something that we take great encouragement in, that this is something that even Satan himself cannot stop, that we push forward. But we can take this parable down even to another level. This is what Jesus is teaching. And what our takeaway here is that the kingdom of God is coming and it will grow and it will have victory no matter what happens. There's another level in which we can take a look at this personally as well. And that if we have come to faith in Christ, that he will make a transforming work in our hearts. It's not because of any sort of moral reform that we're able to accomplish, but that we have come to Christ and have the Holy Spirit living within us, we will see a transformation. No matter what we look to in our lives. Here, this woman was bent over for 18 years. And I could imagine Jesus calling her up and her thinking, oh, what is he going to do? I've been like this for 18 years. How can I expect there to be any change from this? But one word and one touch from Jesus transformed this woman entirely. And we could look to ourselves, we who are spiritually bent over and are unable to straighten ourselves, and say, I've been like this for as long as I can remember. I've been dealing with this anger problem or this lust issue or this inability to be content. What's Jesus going to do about it? I'll tell you what he's going to do about it. He's going to transform you. Will it be immediately? Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. If you put leaven into dough, it doesn't rise immediately. It takes some time. I've been trying recently, unsuccessfully, to get a sourdough starter going. You put it in the jar, you get the water going, and nothing seems to happen until it does. And that's what we see in our own spiritual lives as well. If we were to look at things day in, day in and day out, we might not see much growth, like eight-year-old Mark running out to the field to see his sunflowers. But when we check in and think and look back over God's faithfulness over our months and years, if we're true believers, we're going to see some progress. We're going to see some change. Are we where we need to be? No. Is there a long way to go? Yes. But we're further along than we were before. Not because of our work, but because of Christ. So that's what I want us to take away from this passage today. When we look through and see discouragement in our own lives or in the lives of other people that we would like to see come to faith. And we think, what is the gospel doing? It's having its effect. It might not be working at the speed that you would like or that I would like, but he's doing something wonderful. And when we see small progresses, we say, it's like, well, it's not what I'd like it to be, but I can see this thing here. That's a miracle. Don't despise that. Don't look to the small churches and say, what can they do? Because you're right, they on their own can't do anything. But the Christ that is growing them, the Christ that is their foundation, that is what's going to accomplish wonderful things, transformative things. And that is what we can always hope to. So don't be discouraged by the news. Don't be terrified by what's coming. There may be difficulties that are ahead, yes, But there is a victory that is assured, a kingdom that is coming that will not be stopped. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this time that we have together in your word. Lord, I do hope that we can remember and proclaim this victory that you have given to your church. Lord, we can be easily discouraged, we can be easily frightened. 
We can think and look to just what's in front of us as evidence of whether or not you're working. But Lord, you are always working. You are always accomplishing something. Even in our weak efforts, you can do glorious things. So I pray that we would look to hope, with, to hope in you, that we would find our encouragement in you and our ultimate satisfaction and joy. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.